0: Back in my previous church, one of the elders of the church had a habit, after a particularly difficult sermon, of coming up to me and saying, in his his uh, deep voice, David, that was a very courageous message. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, <laughs> I took as code for, you know, hmm. Well, let me say, in Matt's absence, because Matt's also one of those who is currently out with um, ill health, a fortnight ago, Matt preached a very courageous message, a message from Judges chapter 19. He took us through to the end of verse 28, and today our program demands that we continue through verse 29 through to the end of chapter 21, Three chapters in the book of Judges that probably describe what could arguably said to be the lowest point in Israel's history. And I don't say that as, as my assessment because some hundreds of years later, in fact, the prophet Hosea, who was writing, who was speaking about the moral depravity that there was in Israel in his day, said, uh, it's almost like the times of Gibeah, the events that we have described here in chapter 19. It's akin to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Even Hosea considered the actions described in Judges 19 as the benchmark of depravity, one of the lowest points in the history of God's people. Now, before we get to um, chapter 20 today, two things. Let me, first of all, encourage you to have the text open. I'm not going to put it up on the screen today because we're not going to read through the whole text. It's a little long to do that. Uh, So have it open because I'll be referring to it. I'll give you a pricey of it in a few moments. But as we think about this passage too, ask the question, what does the author want us to understand? Don't get lost in the detail, don't get stuck on the the events and the details, but ask the question, what is it that the author actually wants us to pick up uh, from this passage? The horrible story of the Levite and his concubine, recorded in chapter nine, ended with—sorry, uh, chapter nineteen—ended with the Levite, and, and Matt uh, spoke about this callously stepping out of his uh, the home that he was staying in there in verse twenty-seven, finding his concubine fallen on the threshold of the house, uh, fall at the doorway with their hands on the threshold. So quite a provocative image there, uh, saying to her, "Let's go, get up." we're on our way uh, which she was unable to do because she was dead let me just get the slides up here so that you've got something to hang uh, the image on now here we have what I think is a fairly mild representation of what probably was the case In the last uh, few verses of chapter 19, it was recorded that he headed home with her on his donkey, with the body on the donkey. And in a turn of events that's consistent with the cruelty and the abhorrent nature of this passage, he took a knife, it's there in 29, cut up her body limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them to all areas of Israel. How he did that, we can only speculate on we don't need to think about the graphic um, nature of what that would have been like. But we can probably speculate on his motivation. Why did he do that? And I suggest to you, and the text would support this, that he did it um, not um, to find a way of achieving justice for her, but to vindicate himself. And when the various tribes of Israel, and this is where we start our text in chapter 20, when the various tribes of Israel were confronted by this, and I guess the the description of what had happened, uh, they were mortified. Such was their shock, they cried out, and you'll find this uh, down here in the passage, um, verse 3, the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. In other words, tell us what to do. And it's an interesting question, isn't it? What should we do? How should we respond to this outrage that we have witnessed? Tell us what to do. It indicates something rather interesting and again, as I've said to you on many occasions, this text could so easily be describing our day because it's describing what is essentially a moral ambiguity. They didn't know what to do. There's moral confusion infecting the very heart of Israel and they didn't know how to respond. And that shouldn't surprise us because we've been told on a number of occasions leading up to this text and we will again at the end of chapter 21. There was no king in Israel. You remember how the rest of that sentence goes? So everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Let me tell you that is a recipe for moral confusion. Because truth is no longer objective, it's not defined by something solid and unchanging, truth becomes whatever you want it to be. It becomes subjective and when truth is subjective, when, when people do whatever is right in their own eyes, uh, moral confusion abounds. What's rather interesting too in this passage is uh, that the author tells us on three occasions, if you've got the text in front of you, Um, that Israel united as one at this moment. Now, that's really bizarre, isn't it? Because in recent history, Israel has had to fight against the Canaanites and the Midianites and the Amorites and the Philistines and not once did they unite as one. Not once did they step out as one people in response to God's command... But now that it's something that uh, that has to do internally, something domestic, if you like, they unite as once. So that's a very curious uh, thing to happen, and there's some interesting applications we could make, but I'm not going to, uh, given how much we've got to get through here. But how badly corrupted their priorities have become, that they fail to unite in their opposition to the Midianites or the Amorites or the Philistines. But when it's not to do with someone inside their own house, Why oh, they really get on the bandwagon, don't they? If you come to verse 4 in chapter 20, the Levite, uh, who's been the focus of the story to some degree, reported to this gathering what happened, but if you read what he says, he's very, uh, shall we say, um, he's coy in how he explains what happens. I explained this to a mother I was having a parent-teacher interview with once, I said to her, uh, "Madam, n- not that language, but this language. Uh, Your son handles the truth very loosely." <laughs> I can't remember at the time. She didn't didn't actually respond all that well to that <laughs> to that summary, which I thought was actually quite fair. Um, but this guy, the Levite, doesn't handle the truth particularly well either. He handles the truth rather loosely. He tells the story with uh, with a reasonable. Um, emphasis on him being the good guy if you like in some respects and certainly no explanation of his unfaithfulness in that space in fact um, one of the themes that runs right through this passage if you ever want to unpack it in another direction is the theme of unfaithfulness the unfaithfulness of the concubine Matt didn't touch on this a fortnight ago but In uh, chapter 19 verse 1 we find out that she had committed adultery she left um, her husband Uh, the unfaithfulness of the Levite the unfaithfulness of Israel is this flow of unfaithfulness right through this passage and so here in this section the Levite explains his actions putting himself in pretty good light and from verse 8 onwards the people of Israel rose as one Uh, the text I've got here says they rose as one man saying none of us will go home No, not one of us will return to his house. Uh, This is what we will do. And they hatch a plan. They have a plan to raise up an army to go against Gibeah. And rather interestingly in the text, it says, we will give them what they deserve. In other words, we will make sure revenge is effected. We will make sure this crime is punished. I I love the way the author actually does capture that language there. We will give them what they deserve what do they deserve it's an interesting question who's the judge of that let's not go down that rabbit hole however uh, if you come a little further on in the text prior to taking up arms they did appeal to the Benjamites to surrender those who'd been involved in the rape and abuse of this woman you'll find them there in verse 12 Saying to the tribe, what about this awful crime that was committed amongst you? Surrender these wicked men uh, so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. So there's some good intent in one respect, but the Benjamites, if you follow the text there, uh, wouldn't listen. They actually chose to hide the perpetrators of this crime. And so uh, in response... The Benjamites actually gathered a significant number of soldiers themselves. If you come to chapter 20, verse 15, they managed to mobilise 26,000 swordsmen. That's a fair crowd, isn't it? Imagine what 26,000 looks like. And not only that, the text also tells us that they managed to raise 700, what we might call special forces as well. Uh, seals or whatever the uh, the name is, you know, those those especially highly trained soldiers in this case left-handed soldiers i've said before and um, the story of ehud bears this out watch out for left-handed people Uh, well that's not fair left-handed soldiers very handy in battle because typically uh, the soldier would hold his shield in his on the left and wield the sword on the right which meant you had protection from the direction that most attacks would come from. But if you reversed it, there was a problem. And not only were they very handy because they were left-handed, they were also, we're told, extremely good at slinging a stone at a hare and not missing. So slingshots, a very nice weapon, uh, a a bit akin to, shall we say, um, what are those people who hide in the bushes and shoot... um, Snipers, thank you, I heard someone say it, thank you, snipers, 700 snipers. The Israelites, if you follow with, uh, with me in the text, managed to muster 400,000, 400,000 to go against the 26,000 and they gathered at Bethel and they inquired, who of us shall go up first against the Benjamites? Now that's an interesting question. And it's an interesting question because, um, well, for a couple of reasons. First, the first reason is they couldn't all go at once. Now, think about uh, 26,000 is a big number, right? Imagine what it would be like to field 26,000 on the battlefield. And not only on a battlefield that was open, but in a battlefield that was typically hilly with ravines, uh, gorges, uh, steep slopes, all that sort of stuff. Uh, It was impossible to take an army of 400,000 against 26,000 in those geographical conditions. You couldn't send that number. It wasn't possible to send that number. And so Israel asked the question, Who shall go first? And the Lord said, Send Judah. Now, there's some interesting theological stuff going on here, too. Because if you read on in the text, on two occasions the Israelites said, Who shall go? And God said, Send these ones and when they went they got thumped twice an army from israel went against the benjanites and they were slaughtered and so the question that you kind of have to ask is this was god tricking them was god kind of fooling them you know lulling them into a false sense of security and say off you go you'll be fine and then they actually weren't did god lie did god deceive them ever thought about that question? Our starting point when we think about these kinds of questions, and this is an important um, uh, process in terms of the way we think about the scripture, is we start with the things that we know about God. We, We start with what's true. We know that God never lies, we know that God's not deceptive, we know that God doesn't Um, treat people in a manner that would be inconsistent with his character at any time and so we have to say no that God did not lie, God did not deceive, God did not fool them. So what's going on here? I think it's a little bit uh, like this. Two things, first of all uh, we have to keep in mind that God is a God of judgment and God will judge sin. And so one of the things that's going on in this place is that God is actually exercising his judgment on sinful Israel because no one's doing the will of the Lord, neither the Benjamites nor the Israelites. And so as part of his process of judging, God is actually exercising that through this process. The other thing that I think is going on in this passage here is this. The question that they asked is... um, shall go up they didn't actually ask the question should we go up you notice the difference let me illustrate it with a with a story Um, I've decided to start a breakfast ministry over at Melrose Um, I've talked to the principal Uh, we start next Wednesday I've got six people who are already ready to help me and I'm inviting you to pray with me to decide which cereal we're going to use I think Cocoa Pops probably I can see I'm going to get quite a few more volunteers. <laughs> but can you see the problem? It's kind of like me wanting to bolt God onto my plans. And here we have an, il- an illustration or an example of Israel who have been agitated with moral outrage in a time of moral ambiguity, defaulted to what essentially is a political plan, and I'll talk about that in a few moments. They've figured out this is what we're going to do. God, come for the ride. Who shall go first? They didn't stop and ask the question, should we go? And it's almost as though God's saying, well, go and see how it goes for you then. It's on your heads. And it's actually not until the third occasion when they asked the question, uh, should we go up against our brothers or not, in verses 26 to 28, that God actually says, yes, for tomorrow I will go with you. It's only when they ask the right question that God gave the right answer. Prior to that, God just basically said, look, you, you think you know what you're doing? See how it ends. I'll be interested to see how my Cocoa Pops go on Tuesday. Now, that's an entirely false story, so don't turn up at Melrose on Tuesday, please, <laughs> all right? It's not happening. Just thought I'd better say that, because I can see some of you already planning, oh, Cocoa Pops for breakfast, Fantastic there's a big chunk here i'm going to skip through judges 20 through uh, 29 to 48 describing in some detail the battle strategy that finally brought about the defeat of the benjamites it was similar to other strategies that israel used Uh, lure them out surround the city burn the city come back and attack you can see all of the details there Um, after chasing and defeating the military men of benjamin the men of israel went back to the land of benjamin they put all the towns to the sword including all of the animals and everything else they found, which we would have to assume included any people, men, women and children who were left behind. And so this story morphs from a story about bringing justice to a story that is about a bloodthirsty massacre beyond belief. It's almost genocide, isn't it? It's the wiping out of a whole tribe. It's not about justice anymore. What started out as a as a a moral crusade became a bloodthirsty crusade, a massacre beyond belief. And so we come to chapter 21 and there's a little bit of information here uh, which is rather interesting. In 21 verse 1 we're told that before the battle the men of Israel had made a covenant together never to give any of their daughters as wives to the Benjamites. Only thing is now when they come to this place in the aftermath of this massacre, when they've done this awful thing, uh, the Israelites have realised the gravity of what they've done. They realise the enormity of what's just taken place. This, this story is by no means in, in anywhere near comparable, but it'll perhaps help you just think about this. Some years ago, um, I was down in the far west of the state and I was lining up a rifle sights and, you know, making sure I hit what I wanted to hit and I thought, I'll just have a bit of a practice out in the paddock and so I saw this old lawnmower out there and I thought, that's a good target and so I pumped two or three shots into the side of the lawnmower and then I thought, I'm not sure that lawnmower was scrap. (laughs) It wasn't my lawnmower. (laughs) You know, the enormity of what I'd done suddenly impressed me. I thought, I've just shot a hole in the side of the engine block of my father-in-law's lawnmower. Oh, dear. (laughs) Now, that's nothing by comparison. Not not, not a scrap of comparison can be made, but you get the sense. In this moment, Israel suddenly said, what have we done? What have we done? We've wiped out a tribe. How can it be that one of the tribes is no longer? What are we going to do? Uh, you'll see this reported there in chapter 21 verses two and three the people went to bethel where they sat before god until evening raising their voices weeping bitterly oh lord god of israel they cried why has this happened to israel well i know what the answer is they did it why should one tribe be missing from israel today god is probably sitting there saying i want to tell you why you know this is why and so again political solution what are we going to do? The Israelites say, let's adopt a couple of strategies to overcome this problem. And so, first of all, from verses 5 to 14, Israel determined that they could get wives from a part of Israel that hadn't participated in in this campaign. There was a, an area, Jabesh Gilead, the people from Jabesh Gilead had not turned up, for whatever reasons. We're told that all Israel had, but these people hadn't. And so, as a, a means by which we can punish these people for their lack of participation in our Moral crusade, let's go and put them to the sword, and that's exactly what they did. You thought this story couldn't get any worse, but it actually does. 12,000 soldiers went against Jabesh Gilead, they killed everyone but 400 virgins who were provided to the Benjamites as wives. What a that's a tragic story that's just getting worse, isn't it? And we can read through this. Uh, really quickly and skip over it because it's distasteful, but just stop here for a second and just imagine the grief and the trauma that's going on. And these people, innocent people in Jabesh Gilead, well, innocent as innocent can be described as, uh, who were put to the sword, 400 of their young women carried off to be wives. I hate to imagine what they were thinking But 400 were not enough and so from chapters 21 verse 15 to 23 after a peace treaty had been established with the Benjamites um, a plot was hatched to uh, procure more wives and they thought to themselves well we can't ask any of the men of Israel to give their daughters but if those daughters happened to be kidnapped, technicality, we could do that. And the festival's coming up at Shiloh and typically what happens at the festival is the young girls go out and they dance among the vineyards and they celebrate and they have a good time. So here's what you're to do, guys. Hide amongst the vineyards. When you see a likely young woman come along, grab her, carry her off and everything will be all right. If the fathers protest and they say, Oh, that's not right, we say, no, 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 it's okay. You're not breaking the vow. It's good. Away you go. Everything's going to be okay. And that's what they did. And so we get to the end of the book of Judges and after reading these three chapters, one of the questions we kind of have to ask is what on earth is going on here? Because at the end, there's no great revival, no restoration, there's no pronouncements of judgment from God, no Uh, No suggestion even that there's a remnant in Israel that hold fast to the faith. No judge is raised up to lead the people. No prophet is on hand to call them back to right religion. And so that question that I asked you before, what does the author want us to understand from this is left hanging in the air. And I don't know whether you've noticed this or not but throughout the book of Judges the person who wrote this really just tells the story quite dispassionately Just he just tells the story he doesn't actually make much judgment on the story he just tells the story there's no moral judgment even by the author through these passages he just tells it as it was in fact the closest we get to any kind of judgment is found in the last verse there and if you've got your Bibles open um, you'll find it Again, that refrain that we've heard on a number of occasions, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. There's your problem. Everyone's just doing whatever they want. And I think that's really informative because what the author wants us to notice is not what happens or what happened, but what drove those things that happened the events described particu- particularly in these last three chapters are particularly abhorrent but they are not the things that the author wants us to note. The real problem is not what the people did, it's what sits underneath that, that each person was acting according to their own desires and when that happens the author wants us to understand anything goes, anything can happen. That's the real issue here. The author's not so much interested in the actions, this story's horrible, But it's a story that is driven by heart that lies underneath. It's driven by the sin that lies underneath. And in fact, some of the things that happen in this passage are actually quite good. You know, it was probably a good thing that Israel gathered in response to this this atrocious behaviour. It was probably good that people expressed moral indignation at what took place. But the way they worked it out, that wasn't good Most people in these times were simply going about their business and that is true in our world today, isn't it? People are going about their business, they're doing good things and they're doing bad things. That's just how it rolls in a world that uh, uh, has people living as everyone sees fit. And the community should have been outraged by that atrocity described in chapter 19 but interestingly the uh, the same people who were outraged by that atrocity were the ones who went and slaughtered men and women and children and animals and perpetuated an atrocity of equal abhorrence. And the message that the author wants us to hear is that when everyone does whatever is right in their own eyes, there are no limitations, there are no boundaries, there's no control. When sin reigns in the life of a community, when people dump anything that restrains that, and specifically when they dump uh, the Christian worldview, good things will happen, bad things will happen, but anything goes. Right and wrong, as I said before, becomes subjective, moral boundaries are blurred, or as we see in this passage, they're even erased. And it doesn't take a rocket science to join the lines between what this passage was saying to ancient readers and how this passage speaks to us today. Because we too live in a time where the rights of the individual are championed and truth is subjective. In other words, the philosophical foundation, the foundation of the modern Western world is just like that that we see here in ancient Israel. There is no king. We are our kings. We rule our lives. We determine our activities we determine our pathway we live out our own vision we have the right to do what in, is right in our eyes no matter how it may impact others and one of the blind spots and you, you're familiar with this because we've talked about this in the past one the blind spots for those who would erase christian faith from the public square and shrug off the constraints traditionally afforded by the christian worldview which has had an incredible incredible impact in shaping our law and our society our justice the protection of the vulnerable if we shrug that off we're left with a vacuum that will eventually be filled with anarchy in israel although they were repulsed by the actions of the men of gibeah they were quite okay with slaughtering women and children and using devious means to circumvent an oath and kidnapping women you know that was fine anything goes when you do whatever's right in your eyes and and while we're 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 pouring shall i say um, criticism on where our world is heading let me just highlight something else interesting here too they the israelites when they were confronted by the events of chapter 9 demonstrated behavior eerily consistent with our behavior in a community too at first there was outrage how could such a thing happen then there was confusion tell us what to do and then they defaulted to the same kind of solution that we would default to in our community a political solution the men of Gibeon need to be brought to account let's fight them and give them what they deserve political solution the Benjamites are hiding fugitives let's wipe them out political decision oops uh, we've wiped them out Now, this is typical of political solutions too, by the way. You find a solution, it creates another problem. Uh, Let's find wives for them. That's a good solution. That's a problem because we haven't found enough, so we find another solution. Can you see how people defaulted to a political solution when actually what they're trying to address at, at the core is a heart problem? Now, truth be told... I don't speak about politics as often as I should, so don't turn off when we do. This has got nothing to do with party politics, but politics in general, I'm happy to go on the record as saying Christians ought to be engaged, interested and participate in the political process. We need good government for the stability of our society. But there's a neat summary that I heard recently that, um, that posited this that politics is actually downstream of values, which in turn are downstream of beliefs. In other words, political decisions made by those who are in government ought to be driven by values commonly held in the community, which ultimately are shaped by what people believe. Is that fair? I think it's probably fair. And so what we have in the case of Israel is a vacuum Of beliefs and values and so all they had left was uh, the political what happens in our community when we dispense with that Christian framework and the values that come with faith is we face social problems with political solutions so just by way of a couple of examples let's think about underage drinking for instance what do we do about that bang up the tax make it harder to buy the alcohol there's a good solution what about the the, the um, people who are doing burnouts by your house at midnight impound their cars there we go that'll fix the problem Or what about when someone's offended by something I might say let's codify language let's make rules about what you can and you can't say political solution over these past couple of weeks Uh, Our staff have been working through um, the Child Safe Standards, which are very much at the centre Well, no, I shouldn't even say that. They're part of our safe church policy. And rather interestingly, one of the conversations that we've had is we're observing a drift even in this space. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying because we are absolutely committed to keeping our children and everyone in our church safe. But we're seeing Child Safe Standards go from this to this to this as the community continues to drift away from the values that we hold as Christians, we need more codes to tell us how to behave. And so I say, we look after the vulnerable and those amongst us who are at risk, not because we've got 474 codes that we have to adhere to, but because the law of God demands it from us. And so when we're talking about this this stuff, we consistently come back to We do these things because this is how we serve Jesus. Not because we're obeying the government, although we are, by implication we are. We do these things because it's about Jesus. And I could throw lots and lots of examples at you this morning, but I'm sure you get the point. Our society has to default to political solutions because of the bankruptcy of our hearts. And every one of these examples and all the rest that could be dreamed up are actually linked ultimately to sinful hearts. When we drift from our Christian foundations, all we have left are political solutions and the more we depend on political solutions, the greater the risk of this. Because if politics drives the values and the beliefs that there are in the community, you end up with an autocracy So what's the solution? Let's end with some hope. And let me just say to you, there is hope. There is much hope. That's the message the church has for the world, that the world will find nowhere else, the message of hope. By the end of the book of Judges, it's become really clear that we need a saviour who can come without being called for. There's been judges, saviours raised up. They serve for a time, they are flawed, they have their faults, they are not able to save Israel in the way that Israel needs to be saved nor in the way that we need to be saved and the message of Judges is we need a Saviour who can come without being called for. Early in the book of Judges, you might remember the people cried out when they were being oppressed by the Midianites or the Amorites. Towards the end of the, of the book of Judges, they're not even crying out anymore. They're not calling out to God for help. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, Paul said these words, which applied in Paul's time as they do now, there is no one righteous, not even one, there is no one understands, no one who seeks God. The spiritual malaise in the time of the judge was, was so serious that no one cried out for a saviour and so too today most people will go happily about their lives, never cry out for a saviour. We need a saviour who has chosen us, not one that we choose. And this is great news too because uh, God did choose us. Paul, uh, sorry, Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. God has actually chosen us to be his agents, to be his ambassadors, a saviour who chose us. By the end of the book of Judges, it's clear that we need a saviour who will be able to do it all by himself, because we cannot save ourselves. Again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul said, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We sang about that grace earlier in the service, amazing grace, uh, that saved a wretch like me. I couldn't do it. None of us can do it but Jesus can. And as we've been thinking about the sin that so besotted Israel's life, by the end of the book of Judges, it's clear that we need a saviour who can purge us of sin, who can deal with the heart problem, the heart issue. The political solutions are never going to work, they're just going to continually create other problems. They might moderate the behaviour, they might regulate the behaviour, they might help in the short term, but in the long term, the issue is one of sin And we need a king who can deal with the evil in our hearts as well as in our society. And I think one of the things that the book of Judges does point us to is the need for a greater king yet, a king greater than David or Solomon or Saul, a king who we find in Jesus. And of course, we might say too, by the end of the book of Judges, it's clear that we all search for a king. It's either going to be ourselves or someone beyond us. We all need someone to rescue us and there's only one who provides this. And the encouragement of the Scriptures is to look to Jesus, the ultimate King, because if we don't, we'll serve a false one. Let's pray together. Father, at the end of this assignment that we have been engaged in for months now, working our way through the book of Judges, we give you thanks again for your eternal word to us, for your unchanging word to us, for the scriptures that are a mirror in some respects and show us what we are like. In a book that recounts events thousands now, years ago, and yet so eerily similar to the times that we live in. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's appropriate for us today to pray for those who lead us who govern over us we thank you for their service we take seriously the commands of the scripture to pray for those the kings and those who are in authority over us and so we do pray for our government today but we're mindful Lord that uh, the political process which you have given us designed to bring about good governance has its shortcomings and can't deal with issues of the heart and so, God, as we reflect on your word today, we take seriously not only the, uh, the command to pray for those who lead us, but to demonstrate in our own lives what it means to have a king other than ourselves, what it is to have transformed hearts. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the experience that so many of us have had in coming to you and acknowledging our sinfulness, acknowledging that sin is something we inherited from Adam, acknowledging that it's something that is there in us at work in us ruling over us we've come and sought your forgiveness we've repented we have experienced the infilling of your spirit the baptism of your spirit in our lives that has made us new has freed us from death and the grasp of sin and so today we pray that you'll help us to live that out victoriously in our lives not only in our church in our workplaces, in our community, wherever you take us, Lord. We pray that that would be evident to all. God, we continue to thank you that you are at work, that you have not given up on this world, that your purposes will not be thwarted and that your victory is assured. We praise you. Lord Jesus, we exalt you. Amen.